I want to start by asking you a rhetorical question, and if you don't know what that is, that means uh, it's a question I'm going to ask that you don't have to answer out loud. It's okay to talk and respond when I want you to, right? Um, But here's the question. What do you think of when you hear the term daddy issues? What comes to your mind? If you're like pretty much most people, you think about your own father, your own dad, and and maybe some issues that have been created in your life based upon your relationship with him. And that concept uh, was really popularized by Freud in psychology when he called it the father complex. And the idea is that children grow up and based upon their relationship with their father, it creates neurosis in their life, which is dysfunction in their life because they had a dysfunctional relationship. And then over time, somewhere, you know, in the last century, probably, we just kind of came up with this colloquial term of daddy issues. And that's a way of kind of saying pop psychology, kind of conventional wisdom of thinking that we have issues in our life that are a result of our dad, of our father. And as we kick off this new series here today called Our Father, we're going to talk about having daddy issues, but not necessarily issues as they relate to our earthly father, but as they relate to our heavenly father. Because a lot of us, if we're not careful, we will put on to God, we will think about God in a way that we think about our father. And we come to conclusions of, if you're anything like my dad, then I may not like you. We kind of presume onto God, since God has used this name to describe himself. The first person of the Trinity, God, has revealed himself as a father. And he did that for a reason. The problem is we live in a fallen world and how we think about our fathers or the daddy issues that we have with our earthly father, we naturally project onto God, our heavenly father. But the reason why we're doing this series is because I want us to think rightly about God. We can't start with the basis of our heavenly father and then project that onto him. We need to start with the basis of who God is and then let that inform how we father. Because if we don't think rightly about God, then we get everything else wrong. In fact, I wanna start off this series with a quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer, very smart, brilliant theologian. And this is what he said, listen to this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say it again. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing is not if we're American. The most important thing is not if we're a Georgia fan. The most important thing is not what we know about sports or what we know about investments or what we know about our chosen field of study or or how our marriage is or how our relationships are. The most important thing about us, Tozer says, is how we think about God. So we're doing this series to learn how to think rightly about who who God is and how God has chosen to reveal himself as a father. So as we get started, would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the truth about who you are. 
God, I pray that we would not let the world inform who you are. We would not let our experiences inform who you are, but we would let your word inform who you are. Because you have revealed yourself, and that means you have told us, you have shown us who you are. And so, God, as we open up your word now, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth in it, but not only the truth, but see the beauty in it, see the gloriousness in it, and we would come to think rightly about who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter six. That's the first book in the New Testament. It's one of the four gospels, and this is Matthew's account of Jesus's life. This is Matthew's account, an eyewitness account of everything that Jesus did and and everything that he said, although it doesn't record it all, because the Bible says if that were the case, then then we wouldn't have enough books to record it all. But but here's a, 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 a concise kind of testimony of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, which is a part of arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. And it was Jesus' first sermon called the Sermon on the Mound. And it was simply called that because he was up on a mountain and he gave a sermon. Very creative title, right? Sermon on the Mount. And in that, he talks about the Beatitudes. He talks about how we are to be and then how we are to relate, not only to God, but to relate with the world. So a great sermon goes over several chapters, but right in the middle of it, we're going to look at Matthew chapter six, starting in verse five, how Jesus teaches us about prayer. Now, this isn't a series necessarily about prayer, although I'll refer to it, but I'm using this text to talk about how Jesus talked about prayer and to let that inform for us who God is and how we are to relate to him. So Matthew chapter six, starting in verse five, we'll work our way down to verse nine. It says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your, what's that next word there? Father, very nicely done, who is in secret, and your what? Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your what? Father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, let's stop and talk. So Jesus obviously is talking about here living out our life. In fact, in Matthew 6, verse 1, he says, don't practice your righteousness to be seen before others. That verse right there should inform all of our church and Christian interactions. Don't practice your righteousness for others to see how righteous you are, because if you do that, then you're not righteous. So Jesus is saying... When it comes to, and there's three things he outlines in Matthew 6, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. Now, those three things, notice it's not if you give, it's when you give. It's not if you pray, it's when you pray. It's not if you fast, hello, but when you fast. We did a fast earlier this year. He says, don't do those things as a way to show that you have this great relationship with God. Because if you do those things to show that you have this great relationship with God, guess what? You don't have this great relationship with God. 
So Jesus, and it's interesting here, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Now we know what hypocrites are. If you don't, just look in the mirror. Right? That wasn't too funny. You're like, ah. <laughs> This is why when people say, I don't want to go to that church, there are a bunch of hypocrites. I lovingly say, come on, you'll feel welcome. Because <laughs> you're a hypocrite. We, we know what hypocrites are, right? Hypocrites, by definition, are people who say one thing and do another. But that's not the way Jesus is using this. Jesus is saying hypocrites are those who don't pray privately. I think, how is that hypocritical? The reason why that's hypocritical is when people pray just outwardly, eloquently, thinking because they want everybody to think they have a great relationship with God. It's hypocritical because they don't pray privately because if they just prayed privately, they wouldn't get public praise. And so what Jesus is talking about here is not that we can never pray publicly because I just did that. But Jesus is talking about here is prayer ultimately is about relationship, not words. Prayer ultimately is about a conversation with God. And Jesus, interestingly enough, uses very intimate language to talk about this conversation with God. He says things like this, when you pray, don't pray on the street corners, but go into your room and lock the door. Go in secret. That word there, secret, is the Greek word, cryptos. That's where we get our English word, cryptonology, which means to uncode something. The idea there, if you're going to uncode something, you're going to kind of get through all the layers, and you're going to get at the heart of what the message is. It's a word of intimacy. This is why when a man and a woman, a husband and a wife are consummating their marriage, hopefully it's in secret. Because that's intimate. That's, that's the idea that, that what happens behind closed doors, not everybody should know about. And so Jesus is saying, if we just go out publicly without a private prayer life with God, then we're living hypocritically because we're claiming to know God, but we don't really know him at all. Because we, we aren't close to him. We don't talk to him this way. What was remarkable, remarkable about Jesus, in fact, if you just study religion, the study of religions over all the centuries, you will see that Jesus is the first and only teacher that talked about God in such intimate ways. He used the term father. Now, it doesn't mean that Jewish people would never refer to God as father. If you look throughout the Old Testament, there are definitely references to God as a father. And we'll dig into some of those where it says that God is a father to a fatherless. He loves Israel like a father. But a Jewish person would never use such intimate language towards God. They wouldn't even utter the name of God because he was otherworldly. He was up there and then Jesus comes and Jesus talks in such intimate language about God. And then he instructs us to talk to God in the same kind of intimate language. In your room, by yourself, in secret. And then he says this, I love this. Don't heap up a bunch of words. That right there should inform your prayer life. 
When you get in, you're like, I don't know how to pray. So you just start, thank God for this and thank God for that and you're awesome and you're amazing and I need this. And you're approaching God like he doesn't know. He knows. You're not approaching God like a child. You're approaching him like a business transaction and you better butter him up if you want to get what you want. But any good father can see right through that. Just this last week, I was outside because I thought it was spring. Lord knows that I was only going to be 30 today. And so I started working out in the yard. I'm like, oh, things are budding. Oh, it's 30. Now they're all going to die. And so we were out there working in the yard a little bit right after some Monday after Easter, trying to just, you know, get out of a comatose state. And I was working out in the yard. And then my beautiful daughter, eight years old, comes up to me and she starts a conversation like this. Oh, dad, I love you so much. You're so amazing. You're such a great father. And I looked at her and I said, what do you want? I'm not an idiot, right? I know what she wants. And she's like, well, can I go to Gigi and Poppy's house? Which is her grandparents, Lindsay's parents. And I said, of course, babe. Oh, great, thank you, dad. You're awesome, you're great. But when she comes to me, she doesn't have to say a bunch of words, why? Because her status is already standing in that she's my daughter. And in fact, when she talks to me like that, it's almost offensive, as if I could be bought. But if she comes to me just as my daughter and knows that I love her, not because she performs, not because she does good things, not because she speaks rightly to me, but simply because I love her. If she comes with that, I already know what she needs. If she comes with that, then that shows that she understands how I feel about her. And we've got a relationship. That is how Jesus is instructing us to come to our heavenly father. He says, don't, don't come to him out loud in front of everybody trying to show off your righteousness. And when you go in there, don't go in there with a bunch of words. He already knows what you need, what you need, <laughs> what you need. Go in there like this, our Father, her Father, in heaven, how would be your name? Now, just a quick word on prayer. When, when Jesus gave us this, we now know it as the Lord's Prayer. But he didn't give us this as something to memorize in the sense that we should just regurgitate these words back to God. Jesus isn't saying, if you want to get God's attention, say these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Like, he's not just saying repeat these phrases. And if I had a conversation with our Catholic brothers and sisters, I would say that. He didn't give us the Lord's Prayer to just recite repetitively. He gave us the Lord's Prayer more of as a template to say, do it like this. You don't have to say it like this. And the first thing that he says of how we are to do it is he says, approach God as though he is your father. Approach God like he's your dad. So when we talk about our father, there's two aspects that I want us to see. When we talk about who God is and how to think rightly about him, there's two things in this phrase, our Father in heaven, that I want us to see. And it's my point. You might want to write this down. 
Our father, which is the phrase, that's why it's in quotes there, expresses his affection for us. Our father expresses God's affection for us. And the phrase in heaven expresses his authority over us. So our father expresses affection for us. In heaven expresses authority over us. Now these two things are so important and we typically think they're mutually exclusive because we think wrongly about God. Let me say to you what I mean. I've said this reference a lot and I'll continue to say it, but one of my Bible professors, Dr. Bob Utley, used to use this metaphor all the time and he said on either side of the road is a ditch. If you've been around here, you've heard me say this. And ultimately, what Dr. Bob was saying is there's two ways to be wrong. You can be in this ditch and be wrong. You can be in this ditch and be wrong. It's just another way of saying you can break all God's commands and be wrong, or you can try to keep all God's commands and still be wrong. That's what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 15, where he's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. It's not just the prodigal son. He was two sons, and Jesus was describing the two ways to be wrong. On one side, you can think that you can do whatever you want and break God's commands. And then on the other side, you can think that if I keep God's commands, he'll love me. Jesus says, no, both of those are wrong. So in the same way, I want you to understand something. When we talk about the affection of God and the authority of God, there's two ways to be wrong in the understanding of those two things. Let me explain more. When we talk about the affection of God, we say that God is love. And he is. So first John tells us he is love. Not that he loves, but he is love. What that means is if you want to know what love is, look at God. Now, here's how our world defines it. God is love. And, and what we mean by God is love, well, he just loves me. And, and we kind of think more like Mr. Rogers. He's so nice and loving, and he would never ask me to do anything that I wouldn't want to do. He would never ask me to be anything that I'm not. And we talk about, and you're going to hear this a lot in the world today. God is love. And the idea of love is this kind of cheap counterfeit idea that if we are to love somebody, we are just to rubber stamp everything in their life. And that's one ditch. When we talk about his affection for us, if we think about just his affection and not his authority, then we're thinking wrongly. But on the other side of the road, there's another ditch where we think about the authority of God. And this isn't one is what I would say is more prevalent in the church. That one is more prevalent in the world. This one in the church is we think God is a tyrant or a dictator. And he just commands us and he's distant. And he's not intimate. He's just like our father, you know, a lot of times in, in earthly circumstances where he just disciplines us, but there's no love there. And I want you to understand something. Both of those ideas in and of themselves do not give us the complete picture of who God is. So if you just talk about the authority of God without the affection, then you don't think rightly. But on the flip side, if you just think about the affection of God and not the authority, you don't think rightly. And so we're going to talk today more about the affection. We'll talk next week more about the authority and really see if you love God, if you want to come back for that message. Because a lot of times people think today, if God really loved me, he wouldn't be over me. 
People today, and you see this in every new young generation that comes up, they're automatically suspect of authority. Any structure, any system that talks about authority, any laws that govern us, we're automatically suspect because why are you trying to control me? Why are you trying to govern me? It's because you want to manipulate me and have power over me. So to think that way about God is wrong because again, you're denying his affection for you. But to just focus on his affection for you and to think that he doesn't have authority over you is to deny who he is. So these two things, affection and authority, are the tension, and by tension, I don't mean that they're in tension, but what I mean is they're, they're together. In our mind, they don't go together, but in God, they do because God is a father, but he's a father in heaven. What that means is the God of all creation the God who is over everything, the God who has inherent authority. We will talk about this in this series. God doesn't have delegated authority because no one else gave it to him. But according to Romans 13, government has a delegated authority. This is the conversation we're having in our country right now. Who has ultimate authority, government or God? And the Bible makes it very clear, God does. Authority is, uh, government is a delegated authority. That means God can take them out and put them in. God is inherent authority. No one gave it to him. He just has it because he is. But listen to this. The God of all creation is also your dad. He's also your dad. He's not distance in relationship. He's distance in royalty. He's not like you. He's other than you, but he's near to you. He's affectionate with you. You want to know the good news about God the Father? The good news about God the Father is he's like the Son. He's like the Son. Jesus showed up, and he showed up to show us what God was like. So everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus does, gives us a glimpse about who God is. And you see both of those in Jesus. Jesus loved people that we would consider unlovable and he would command people that you would think he didn't have the right to command. That's why the Jews wanted him killed. I mean, he said things to them in John 8. He said, God's not your father. Abraham's not your father. If Abraham was your father, you'd love me. The devil's your father. Whoa. So these two things, affection and authority. Again, I, I wish I had more time and I just have to, you got to be here for the next few weeks as we kind of unpack this. But this week, I want to speak, spend the rest of our time talking about the first aspect of God's affection for us. Flip over now to Romans chapter 8. Just go to your right in your Bible, so go through the Gospels. You'll hit Romans pretty quickly. The book of Romans is argued as Paul's greatest work. It's his magnum opus. It's the greatest defense of the gospel. If you want to understand what the gospel is, start in Romans 1 and, and just keep going. This is why when a lot of people talk about um, sharing their faith, they'll use a phrase called the Romans road. You ever heard of that? It's just the road, road through Rome, the book of Romans, uh, book of Romans, the book of Romans, not Rome, the city, but this was written to people that were in Rome. And so this is the greatest defense of the gospel. And so Paul goes from the very beginning about the problem and then works his way through. And in Romans chapter eight, arguably 
the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, maybe even the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Paul says this, Romans chapter eight, verse 12. Work our way down to verse 17. Paul says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Debtors means obligation. We have no obligation now to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's not just talking about physical death, he's talking about eternal death. But if by the Spirit, notice that capital S, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So again, Paul's juxtaposing here, if you live by the flesh, you'll die, which we talked about that on Easter. If you live by this idea that you know better than God, God has no right to tell you what to do. And so you get to determine what is good. If you live like that, you'll die. Not only will you die physically, you'll die spiritually. But then he says, but if by the spirit you put to death that, you'll live. And then he's going to unpack how the spirit works in us to help us put that to death. And that's what I want us to focus on. Look at verse 14. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the spirit are sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, capital S, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, let's unpack this. He says, listen, the spirit that you received wouldn't take you back into slavery. Again, think about the nation of Israel. The, the Holy Spirit, typified as the fire of God, the cloud, the pillar of night, was leading the people of Israel, and he led them out of slavery through the sea. God drowns their enemies. The Spirit would never lead us back into slavery. That's just ridiculous. So where is he leading us? He's leading us into sonship. Now, here's what we need to understand. In our day and age, the idea of sonship doesn't hold near the weight that it held back then. What he was saying is, now the job of the Holy Spirit is to tell us, enable us to be who we are now. And who we are now is not slaves, but sons. If you read throughout the Old Testament, you see the law of primogeniture, which is the first son got the blessing. And the whole reason why the first son got the blessing, we look at that and like, that's so unfair. My daughter would look at that and be like, why does Bubba get all the blessing? Well, the reason being is not because the father didn't love all the other kids, but the father was putting on the oldest son the authority to take care of the entire family. And now what was true about the father is true about the son. So the son is now in his place as he moves on, as he passes on. The son now has all the inheritance that the father has. And now that son is blessing the entire family. So when that sonship came or that blessing came to the oldest son, it was showing, listen, you are now an heir to all that your father is. And here's what the Bible is saying. Jesus 
is the first fruit. He is our elder brother. He is the oldest son. And so the father speaks to him like that. And the whole reason why he speaks to him like that is so that that relationship that he has with his father, he can now give to us. And so when we are a son now, what the Bible is saying is we used to be a slave, but the son became a slave by dying to sin on the cross. And when he came back to life again, he proved not only that he was God, but that what he was, he gave to us and what we were, he took on himself. So now what that means, you're a son. And then he says, I love this. He says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now that word there, Abba, is an Aramaic word. And it's a word that is honestly hard to translate because there's no etymology of the word. What that means is there's no history um, about what it was or how it was used because it was a word used in Aramaic language that a lot of times was described about how children refer to their father. So it means father, but it's, it's one of those words like, it's not that it necessarily, people would always say it means daddy. It's not that it necessarily means daddy because they would not use the word daddy back then, but it, what it's referring to is an intimate way to refer to God. And so in our day and age, what that word is that we would use is daddy. Or a young child would say dada or papa. And every parent who's ever been a parent, when, first, when your child's first born, you always want to know who the first word, uh, what the first word is going to be. And the mom and the dad lobby, say dada, say dada, say mama, say mama. Then they say baba. We're like, what the heck is that? I don't know. <laughs> but, but the idea of this word is this. Now, by the Spirit, we have the right to call God father. He's our dad. Before Jesus, we were slaves. After Jesus, we're now sons. You want to know why? Because now when God sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees his son. And I want you to know how God feels about his son. God feels about his son. And again, he's not a son in the way we would use son. Some religions interpret that like God, you know, had a cosmic baby. Jesus has always existed. He's not a son in that he was created in an eternal cosmic sense, but he's a son in how he relates to God. Again, we, we can't use human language to describe a holy God, but God relates to Jesus like a son and Jesus relates to, to, his, to God like a father. And so what he's describing there is not he was born from him, but how he feels about him. The, the best example we can give is how we feel about our own kids. I'll never forget when my son was born, I was 25 years old. And you go through the whole process, right? And, and, and moms, you know what I'm talking about. If you've had kids, like you've been feeling it this whole time, kicking and all that stuff. Dads, we've just been, you know, eating with you and gaining, you know, stress weight with you. And so by the time that the child comes, like we haven't felt all those emotions, but the moment that that baby enters the world, our world changes. And I'll never forget when my son was born, the overwhelming emotion that I had when they took him into the little nursery and they're cleaning him all up, I'm standing outside on the glass and I'm looking in at him. And he doesn't remember this because he was you know, like an hour old. 
but I'm bawling my eyes out because I'm thinking, that's my son. That's my son. There's not a thing in the world that I wouldn't do for that boy. There's not a thing in the world that he could ever do to make me not feel this way about him. Now, I'll get mad at him for sure, but I love him. I never forget when our daughter was born, a little bit different experience because my wife didn't birth her. We adopted her, but we were there. She was born on a Saturday. We got there on a Sunday to the hospital. We stayed the night that Sunday night in the hospital with her in our own room. And I'll never forget when they wheeled her in, in that little crib. And I thought, that is my daughter. She wasn't my daughter by birth, but she was my daughter by adoption. And that's what he's saying here. She now has, by the process of adoption, all the same rights that my son had by birth. You know what God's saying about you? Now through the Holy Spirit, you now have all the same rights by adoption that Jesus has by who he is. You have that. And so now when God sees you, God sees you. And again, our language fails us to describe human emotions because when he sees you, he sees you way greater than we see our own kids. And if we love our kids like that, how much more does he love us? He's crazy about you. He is so in love with you. The problem is he's a holy God and he had a bunch of kids that he couldn't enjoy because of sin. So he can't be in the presence of it. So he sent forth his son who he loves more than anything and traded places with us to get us back. He bought you. Just like we paid for my daughter. And she's now my daughter. But see, we struggle so much with this, even in how we talk, because we fail to realize that being a Christian is about status, not performance. Here's what I mean. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you said, I'm trying to be. Then that shows you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Now, hear me with this. If I walked up to my son or you walked up to my son and you said, are you his son? And if my son said, I'm trying to be, (laughs) you'd be like, hold up. I I don't think you understand what it means to be a son. Sonship is about status. You either you are you or you are not. There's no trying. My son is my son. And listen, this is the beauty of grace. There's nothing that my son could do to ever make himself not my son. Nothing. And and I want my kids to know that my love is based upon not their performance for me, but based upon my love for them. I don't care if they perform or not. My love doesn't change because they're my kid. They're stuck with me. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That's who Jesus is introducing us to. He's saying, listen, because of me, your status is about to change. You're gonna go from being a slave to now a son. And sons and daughters don't have to make appointments with their dad. 
My kids, unashamedly, unequivocally, and they come to our office, they don't have to know, oh, is, can I have an appointment with my dad? They go right past my assistant into my office. Hey, they're going to go see their dad. You don't have that kind of access because you ain't my kid. But they do because they're, they have a different status. And you know what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 6? You have that kind of right now. You can walk into his room. You can walk right past all the guardians because the son who is in fellowship with him came out and took your place and you went in. That's how he feels about you. You can cry. Dad. You know what my kids, all they got to say to me is, Dad. I tell my daughter all, all the time and she loves to mess with me. She'll come up to me and say, Jason. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Everybody else in the world has to call me that, but there's only two people in the world that can call me dad. That's what Jesus is saying. When you come to him, call him father. Why? Because you have the right to now. Why? Because your status has changed. Now, look at this last two verses, 16 and 17. The spirit, here's the problem. None of you believe what I just said. You don't. You want to, but you don't. So look at the next two verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We'll get into that more next week, but I want to focus more on that verse 16. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we really are children. You want to know why the spirit does that? Because our spirit doesn't believe it. You want to know the job of the Holy Spirit? The job of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us in John 16, when he says, I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to remind you of everything that I said. And then he says this in verse 14 and 15. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then verse 15, he says, all that the father has is mine and the spirit will declare it to you. What is he going to declare? That all that the father has, the son now has, and now you have. That's the whole job of the Holy Spirit. The whole role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus by telling you that you're his son. By reminding you that that's how God feels about you. That you are now a co-heir with Christ. You're not like Christ in substance, but you're like Christ in status. Everything that God has, Jesus had. And now everything Jesus has, you have. Now, how would that change you if you really believed that? I'll tell you one thing it would do, it'd loosen up your hands and you'd be a lot less greedy. My father's got a cattle on a thousand hills. My father owns all the world. My father has everything. My dad can beat up your dad, right? <laughs> if I'm secure in who my dad is, then my heart will have all the rest it needs. And that's the job of the spirit is to tell you because of Jesus who your father is now. You're an heir of God. You're a child of God. 
famous Puritan preacher, Thomas Goodwin, in trying to describe this, gave us a little visual, and I want to end with this. He said, imagine a son and a father walking down a beach, and they're holding hands, and, and they're just walking down the beach and talking. And then all of a sudden, the father reaches down, picks up the son, brings him to an embrace, and says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm proud of you. I'm always here for you. And then Thomas said, when he was walking by the beach holding his hand, was he any less of a son? No. He had all the rights. But why did the father pick him up? To remind his heart about who he is. And that's what the spirit does. That's why there's moments in our life where you're driving down the road or singing a song or listening to a sermon and you just feel the embrace of the father. And you feel that you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And you feel that he's been so, so good to you. And what I'm saying in that moment is the Holy Spirit wants us to bask in who our Father is. He doesn't love you based upon your performance for him. Listen, he knows you can't pray that well anyway. Romans 8 goes on. This is why the Spirit intercedes for us with groans we don't even understand. Why? Because we don't know what to say. The good news of the gospel is you can now be intimate with the God of all creation and not die. Because the God of all creation is your dad. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It is hard to express with human words how incredibly grateful we are to think that you love us the way I love my kids and to know that I'm a sinner and if I know how to give good gifts to my kid, how much more so will you give the spirit to those who ask? So God, I pray right now for all of us because we got daddy issues. We incorrectly project onto you the image of our fathers. We don't think rightly about who you are because who you are is in Jesus, you're our dad. And yes, you have every right to command us but you only command us because you want our good, because you love us. So God, I pray for anybody in the house or listening who has never experienced that kind of reckless love. I pray right now you'd save them so that their status can change. They can go from being a slave to a son, a child of God. Nobody looking around or talking, but I'm going to give you a moment here and ask you, are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? Remember, the answer can't be, I'm trying to be. The answer is, yes, you are, or no, you're not. 
And if you are, it's because you have trusted Jesus. And if you're not, it's because you haven't. Maybe you were still trying to be good. Maybe you were still trying to perform, check all the boxes. The irony of the parable of the prodigal son is the good brother is on the outside. And it was his goodness that kept him out. Remember, the Bible doesn't use categories like good and bad. It uses dead and alive. It's a status thing. Either a child or you're not. And my children are not my children based upon their goodness. And we're not children of God based upon our goodness. We're children of God because we've trusted the Son of God to save us. So if you want to trust Jesus for the first time, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. To yourself, not out loud. It goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me. That you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. He traded places with me so that everything that was true about me, all my sin and shame would go onto him. And everything that was true about him, all of his righteousness, his relationship would come onto me. So I'm trusting in Jesus to save me, ask you to forgive me. Thank you for loving me. I am your child. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just pray that with me for the first time, I want you to do one thing for me. Would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Just lift it up. Thank you. Lift it up. We got some men and women going to walk around. When they put a gift in your hand, you can put it down. But then lastly, those of us who would say that we are a child of God because of Jesus, but you just struggle with actually feeling that way, especially when you knowingly sin. Listen, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit, as a down payment. So if you have trusted Jesus, then listen to the Holy Spirit say to you, you have a dad and he loves you. So cry out to him. Cry out to him. He knows what you need. Be close to him. Let him pick you up into his embrace and tell you once again how he feels about you. Because the greatest gift we can give our kids is not self-actualization, it is love. We've got it backwards. We try to teach self-esteem instead of teaching sonship. If we will just teach relationship, kids will get all the confidence they need because their confidence is no longer based upon who they are, but who their dad is. God, would you grant that by the power of your spirit? Remind us that the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth is our dad. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.